Hello, and welcome to Don't Ignore the Elephant, the podcast where we talk about the stuff that no one else will, the elephant in the room. I'm Liz O'Riordan. I'm a breast cancer surgeon with breast cancer, and during my career, I've had a lot of elephants to deal with. I've learned that talking about them, getting them out in the open, can help you know that you're not alone. Whether it's cancer or other illnesses, mental health issues, sexual problems, bullying, harassment, or the death of a loved one, there are loads of things that can be hard to discuss. I know how powerful it can be to hear someone else talk honestly about their own problems. Some of my guests have lived these experiences, whilst others have dedicated their lives to helping those who have. I'm going to be chatting to them about it and asking the questions everyone else is too afraid to ask. In this episode, we'll be talking about postnatal depression, anxiety, and breaking glass ceilings. Orla Shenoui is a multilingual journalist and former All-Ireland Triple Jump champion. In 2010, she moved from news to sports and is now the lead studio presenter for Eurosport cycling events. Now, I've watched Orla for several years and I've always been impressed at how she comes across. A smiling, confident, capable and intelligent sports expert who's at the top of her game. But it hasn't been easy to navigate her way to the top in a traditionally male-dominated industry. And she often gets criticised for the way she dresses on screen. But that's not all. She speaks freely about anxiety and postnatal depression and the tools she uses to keep herself going when things get tough. These themes are so familiar to me, being a female surgeon in a man's world, dealing with the stress that comes with the job, and I can't wait to get stuck in. Welcome, Orla, to the podcast. Thank you, Liz. What a lovely introduction. Oh, you're welcome. I got the chance <laughs> to meet you in Amsterdam a few weeks ago when you agreed to have coffee and cake with a total stranger, and I must admit to being a little starstruck. Oh, don't say that to me. Don't, don't. No, I will. I will. Because I think on Eurosport, you've made the world of cycling so accessible to me as a female fan. Have you always been interested in sport? Yeah, I have been as long as I can remember, both as a fan and as a participant. It was such a huge part of my upbringing. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about it, because I feel like it's brought me so much all through my life. So as a kid, um, I grew up in rural Northern Ireland where mm -hmm. I was in a tiny village and there wasn't much beyond sport, I guess, unless you wanted to get into trouble, which I didn't actually, <laughs> mercifully, uh, for me and my parents. There was a lot of Gaelic sport and that was really the heart of the community. And we had an athletics club that started up when I was in primary school. So I just kind of did it mm -hmm. as something to do, you know, with my friends really. And I just yeah. loved the social aspect of it. I wasn't into, I don't think I was into competing as when I was really little, um, but I might be mm -hmm. misremembering that because I feel like I'm such a competitive person. It must've always <laughs> been inside me. But yeah, so I competed a lot, but also, as I say, as a fan, my family are huge sports fans. And I feel like it's come from well it has really it's come from my mum more than my dad she is really? all my life she's one of the biggest Gaelic football fans I've ever <laughs> come across so like she was over recently her, my mum and dad came over they're so good to me still they come over to help out with my kids as I was doing the coverage for Eurosport of the Vuelta a España the Tour of Spain and mm -hmm. the All-Ireland final was on while um, we were over. So my mum, of course, is sitting watching the All-Ireland final. And then I came home from the um, cycling coverage. She was watching it 
again. Then I got up the next morning <laughs> to head out for another day of cycling coverage. And I looked at her and I said, Mum, are you watching the All-Ireland final again? She said, it was such a good match. I'm sure I've missed bits of it. She just, she's absolutely <laughs> obsessed. So we used to go every Sunday there was a football match. We'd basically all pile into the car with our sandwiches and our flasks of tea and, and go off and watch Balna Screen, which is my local club, or Derry play, wherever mm-hmm. they were. Um, so yeah, sport has been such a huge part of my life. I feel like it's been, um, aside from my family and childhood friends it's been my one constant really throughout my life Mm -hmm. I feel and what sport do you you used to do the triple jump didn't you yeah yeah I did the triple jump and I I always sort of laugh when I say that because people look at me really strangely it is probably the most I mean barring maybe if I said I did the shot put or trip or like steeplechase or something yeah it's probably one of the order track and field events um so when I tell people I I was a triple jump champion which I don't tend to do very much I should say (laughs) it's now become part of my introduction but I don't go around telling people that that's what I, I know. used to be <laughs> but yeah it's a bit of an odd one really but I I started off doing hurdles sprint hurdling was my thing yeah but I think this probably says a lot about my character I I loved the training I really enjoyed the precision of hurdle training mm. and the drills that came with it and and how many areas that you can work on to improve you know even as a kid I loved that but I hated the racing. I hated getting really? on the start line, getting into your start position, looking up and seeing, like literally seeing all the hurdles in front of you is terrifying. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing in life that we try to avoid. We don't want yeah. to look straight at the hurdles, do we? <laughs> no. And yet I had to do that every time I raced. So um, triple jump, when I when I took to it, I found I, was, I, I had a natural ability, but also... I loved the fact I could go in my own time. It was entirely yeah. my own competition. I was competing against myself. And I, I feel like that just suited my personality an awful lot better. So yeah, I loved it. I really loved it. So I was, yeah, All-Ireland champion, um, clubs and schools. That was my claim to fame as a kid, but not much not much fame, I must say. It didn't get me very far in life. No. <laughs> your background was in news journalism after university. What made you make the change to go over into sports? Hmm... It's a good question because I didn't aspire to be a sports journalist at all. I wanted to be a war correspondent, you know, go straight to the, mm. the top of the, the danger zone and where all the kudos lies. But the reality of working in a newsroom is very different to what I expected it to be. Right. And I just didn't enjoy the politics. I didn't enjoy the kind of person you had to be to rise through those ranks. In UK newsrooms, there is a definite bias towards voices and accents and experiences from the southeast of England. Yes. So I didn't fit into that. Yes. And, um, you know, Oxbridge is still a very important marker by which people are judged. And so because I went to university in Northern Ireland as well, and I've got my Northern Irish accent, people assume a lesser intelligence, I yeah. think. And because I like to be friendly and a fun and I'm quite gregarious, Again, I think that sort of went against me in the newsroom. And I just got a bit sick and tired of that, really. And it sort of eats away at your confidence. And, you know, I've, I've got an education and I think I'm quite bright and sharp enough. So I wanted to use that in a different way. And the, the London Olympics came along and my boss at the time at Sky News, a, a guy called Simon Cole, he'd just been to the Beijing Olympics and fell in love with the Olympic Games and decided that we well. needed an Olympic correspondent ahead of London. And I thought, hang on a minute, this could tick all my boxes and I need a change. So I applied for that, got it, and that was it. There was absolutely no turning back from then. Loved it from then on in. 
Wow. And what, what a spectacle to start your first kind of oh. career at the Olympics in London. I know, peak too soon. <laughs> Story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's all downhill from there. Exactly. I mean, it's not been, but yeah, that was a bit, that was a danger. But I also thought, you know what, if this is as good as it gets, then how amazing to get this. So yeah. I, I convinced myself I was happy with that. But of course, once the London Olympics finished, I thought, right, how can I match that high? Where do I go next? Yeah. <laughs> Now, I was always told um, that I had to work twice as hard as the male trainee surgeons if I was mm. going to make it to the top. And still, there's only about 10% of consultants are women. And I know many listeners in similar positions have felt the same. The cycling is such a male-dominated sport, both on and off the screen. Mm-hmm. How hard was it to be taken seriously as a newcomer? It was hard. And I feel sometimes the reality of that story gets denied me sometimes because people see where I am now and tell me, oh, there are lots of women in in sports broadcasting. There still aren't for a start, but um, they think there's an inevitability to it. But it was difficult, partly again for those reasons that I mentioned. You know, I work in a UK environment and it is still very class snobby, really. So partly being a woman, partly being Northern Irish, I think has actually been, it's been difficult to prove to people that um, I'm intelligent enough to belong here. And I guess intelligent isn't isn't what you need necessarily to prove yourself in sport. It's a passion, it's a dedication, it's the reason that you want to be there. You know, I think a lot of people still look at women coming into sport and, and think, well why do you want to work in sport what what are you trying to get out of this you know and and question their motives in a way that they never would of a man but I remember going to some cycling training camps and also um races and I I'm very I think unapologetically female and feminine and I'm I embrace my gender and I I don't shy away from it I I, appreciate anyone who wants to dress in a different way and and present themselves in a different way but I like to be a woman (laughs) and so I'll wear feminine clothes you know I'll wear dresses obviously situational appropriate but I would go to a cycling training camp and I would be wearing like a work dress for example as opposed to chinos and a polo shirt and I had I had coaches and team bosses literally laugh in my face for what I was wearing yeah and telling me that I that I always looked like I was going to a party and telling me that they couldn't take me seriously I just thought well I'm going to keep going with this because you will take me seriously and I don't need to change how I am you just need to change how you see me yeah it's really interesting now I must admit the first time I saw you on Eurosport, I was shocked because I remember. <laughs> oh, no, you haven't told me this, Liz. Tell me, tell no, no, me. No, 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 no. <laughs> you were wearing a leather mini skirt, comfy boots, white lipstick, the most amazing pair of legs I'd seen. And as you said, it was worlds away from the polo shirts and jeans or the yeah. dress and jacket that the men wore. And I'll be honest, it took me a while to get used to, but now I love yeah. you for it. Oh, but, thank you. It's, it's so reaffirming to see that you can dress and be good at your job, but. Do you think your appearance does distract from what you're saying for some people? No, I don't. I don't because I think a lot of people go on the journey that you've been on, whereby there's a shock to begin with. And you think, why is she dressing like this on my television when she's supposed to be talking about sport? And why does she need to dress like that? I get a lot of that. Why do you need to? But I think, I mean, I've worked in cycling now for 11 years and... I know my shizzle, I just do. I know what I'm talking about and I know the people, I know the personalities, I know the questions to ask and I've gained the respect of people in in cycling, I hope. So I like to see it as the way I dress is just an an added factor. But, you know, so if I wasn't doing my job properly, if I wasn't good enough, 
then I think, okay, criticize me all you like for everything else, but I've got the building blocks in place and then how I choose to present that is up to me. I do understand that people sometimes think it's a bit much, but I tell you the reason, I mean, I've got lots of reasons for dressing the way I do on TV because I don't dress like that in everyday life. I don't I do not do the school run in no. a leather mini skirt and biker bits. Maybe you, you know should. I mean? It's hard to Maybe ride a bike in a leather mini. <laughs> Maybe I should. The thing is I ride my bike everywhere. So a leather mini skirt is a little bit dangerous. But the re- there, yeah, there are a few reasons. The first reason I started to express myself like that on television was because partly what you alluded to before actually Liz the fact that I suffered postnatal depression and I'll maybe get into that but yeah I wanted to show any other mothers out there that you can still be you after having a child you can still look the way you want to look there is no prescriptive rule for how a mother is supposed to look and dress and present herself and it was a big part of I you know had a big identity crisis after having my daughter where friends very kindly lent me maternity clothes for example and every single piece of maternity clothing just made my heart fill with rocks it was just I felt wow am I this person now am I sort of you know, middle-class, middle-aged mumsy because that's not who I feel on the inside. So it's partly that and it's partly why I show fitness things on Insta or whatever or, you know, trying to, you know, that you can, yeah. you can look after yourself, that it's okay to prioritise you. But also because, as I say, I've been a sports fan all my life and so I'm used to turning on my sports coverage and seeing, it's changing now, thankfully, but seeing middle-aged white men in boring outfits talking about sport. What I would love to see and what I'm now getting to see a little bit with, you know, Gabby Logan and Alex Scott is women who bring sass to sports coverage. I want to see a woman that I want to be friends with on television. I want to be drawn in by them as well as the sport because then I feel like this is a space for me because otherwise I've always felt like an interloper. I've always felt like, well, I'm interested in sport, but I'm coming into their world. I'm coming into a man's world. I don't really belong, but I'll stay here because I enjoy the sport. Whereas what I want to show is that if you want your your middle-aged man, he's still here. It's still a space for you. But hang on a minute. It's also a space for my tribe. And I just want to make it a more comfortable space for everybody. And so, and, and to show that women who are into sport don't have to be a certain way. You know, you, no. can, you can love your red lipstick and heels and be obsessed with Cassianivia Doma or Walt Van Aert. Yeah, The exactly. two aren't mutually exclusive. So no. there are a number of reasons for it. So it's not just, I like a leather skirt, because I do, but there is a motive behind it as well. And it works. I mean, you've given me the confidence to be able to give my opinion on cycling in a company of men before oh, you'd think, well, I they won't that. take me seriously. But it's like, no, I can say and I have an opinion. I love that. Firstly, you help me understand it because cycling is, not many listeners may watch cycling. It is so complicated yeah. with all the different I jerseys. Now, <laughs> I get it now. It's like all it tells you what's Yay! going on. Because <laughs> it's awesome when you get it. But it, it oh. it's almost kept like this exclusive club as well. And that's what I want to break down. I want to show people the brilliance of this amazing, brutal sport. And we just I haven't know. had that, you know? We haven't. 
You asked me whether I had to work harder than my male colleagues to prove myself. Yeah. That's something I am eternally grateful for. And it's something really? I still live by. Yeah, it is. Because I tell you what, I will never sit back and think, that's it, I've made it. That's it, I know what I'm doing. I will always have to work harder than, than other people. And that means that I'm better at my job. And that is incredibly satisfying because... Anyone can say you're there because of X, Y, or Z. And now yeah. you know, it's the opposite way around where people say, oh, you're only there to take a box. You're there because you're a woman when I've had to fight. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. You know, despite being a woman, exactly. But but it's made me work so hard in my career that I feel like nobody can say anything to me. You know, you can, you can have your opinion if you like, but I've got that inner self-belief that I've worked so hard to get here. I mean, it's not the same with women cyclists because you, because you still, ha- or women's sport in general, because you do still have to... Um, convince teams and sponsors and advertisers and marketers that that you're worthy of more money but it is an advantage to women an awful lot I think when we see it that way that we have to work harder because it makes us badass and makes us incredibly good at what we do and better than a man who has believed that he's there because he deserves to be there a woman never thinks she deserves to be there so we work harder so yeah there are advantages as well badass women yeah, exactly. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wanted to change tack a little, um, something you touched on earlier. It's mm. not often that people in the public eye talk about mental health issues. And I've suffered with mm. severe depression in my 20s and then again as a consultant, but I've never been brave enough to talk about it before. Well, I guess I just have. Um, <laughs> what made you share your experiences of postnatal depression and anxiety? I don't, I, I, I've never thought of it as in any way being brave. I, I feel like, I, I mean, I'm, I, I think I do my job because I'm a communicator and get so much satisfaction out of communicating with people and sharing with people. And it, it breaks my heart that so many people go through so much and think they're alone in it. And, and I feel like mm. there is so much shared experience in the human condition that would make us all, if not happier, at least more contented with ourselves if we realize that everyone else is going through the same thing or that there are other so many people out there who've lived through it you know and I feel like yeah there's such a darkness there's such a darkness and guilt and shame with thinking there's something wrong with you and I guess I'm lucky I'm lucky because I've come through it and that's not to say that it won't happen again and clearly I guess I'm wired a way that makes me more prone to depression certainly anxiety is something I live with every day yeah but I feel like because I'm lucky enough to have gone through it I want I just want to let other people know like I enjoy helping people I enjoy I feel like if I can ever share the benefit of my experience or limited wisdom then that's a good thing I think I've always been really 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 aware hyper aware of the fact that we will all die (laughs) that we have this one shot at life and that's it And I feel like I don't want any wisdom that I gain along the way to just disappear with me, you know. And oh, that's lovely. Well, I I feel like that's tragic, isn't it? I feel like I get wiser the older the older I get, and I find it so sad that I don't get another chance at this because if I could start again, wow, like what a starting point I'd have. So if I can pass anything that I've learned on to other people, and that becomes part of the collective knowledge and wisdom and and we become more at ease with talking about our mental wellness or mental, I don't like saying mental illness necessarily. Although I, guess, I mean, I guess it is. It's hard to describe, isn't it, without yeah. that stigma or that 
people assuming things. Yeah, and I think Liz as well, just going through it, I don't see any of the stigma and I don't feel any of the stigma. And I guess that's quite liberating as well. And that's probably why I talk about it so easily because for me, there is no shame attached to it. It's something that happens yeah. to people, you know. Whereas I thought if I'm a doctor and my patients found out that I've had depression, they might not want to be treated by the crazy yeah. person. It, it was, wow. I found that really hard being in that world. When did you realise that you needed help? I remember quite clearly, actually the day it was my husband who sorted me out if you like mm -hmm. so I was suffering postnatal depression and didn't I didn't know what it was and I think the hard thing about depression is you do think you're going mad yeah you think the world has completely shifted on its axis and you've got no grasp of anything and I was going through such such an incredible darkness which is really hard when you're a new mum as yeah. well and you know you're entirely responsible for this other person but you've got this horrific guilt that you can't even get out of bed you don't want to do anything you don't want you, yeah. you can't bring yourself to to be really I was I was crying a lot and we moved house at this time we were moving house and we were staying in this um we rented a, a house in the interim I remember lying in the bedroom of this rented house, which which in itself wasn't great because I'd left where I knew and it was a different part of London and I felt yeah. really incredibly lonely where I was. And I would just wake up every morning just crying, crying and begging my husband not to go into work, which obviously he couldn't do. It was terrible just, for you... him. And so I remember lying in this bedroom and my husband went out the door and he came back in again and he said, right, I've got you an appointment. I've got an appointment with a the therapist. You need help. And I kept crying, but this time it was relief. I just thought, thank yeah. God, someone is taking this out of my hands. Someone is helping me here because yeah. I can't help myself. So that's when I realized I needed help. And then I went to the therapist, CBT, it was Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Yeah. Which I found useful to an extent, but because I was still so deep in the depression, I, I felt so ashamed and so guilty. I couldn't really open up to him and I'd never done therapy before and I'd never I'd never really talked about my inner workings to anyone. Um, I think that's a terrifying thing to do. I still struggle with it. It's um, really hard to do, isn't it? Oh, I it's it awful. Just... It's awful. And who picks up the pieces when you come out of therapy thinking, oh my God, how am I going to get home? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... I don't know, like I'm I, I'm very good at giving advice. I'm terrible at taking it and I'm good at telling mm -hmm. people to open up. But but I still, like you know, I'm, I'm confident in everything, but I still believe there's a horrible darkness in my soul that I don't want anyone to ever see. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and maybe we all have that. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I couldn't, I couldn't open up to the um, therapist. And so I knew it wasn't really for me. So I went to the doctor um, and just said to the doctor, listen, you've got to help me. So I went to medication and then I started to get better. I mean, it was a much longer process than that. I stopped drinking. I started meditation. I, I started exercise again. I just prioritized getting well. And I realized how ill I was and that I needed to sort yeah. myself out. So, yeah, that was the, that was the start of my journey to here. And, and I have to say, Liz, that I, again, might sound like I'm a bit Pollyanna-esque, a bit glass half full. But I am so, so deeply grateful for going through that experience. I mean, insanely grateful for going through it. It has taught me so much about myself and how I work and what my strengths are and what I can endure. Yeah. And the compassion it gives me for other people, which I always had anyway. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a very empathetic person, which is sometimes 
a hindrance actually mm-hmm. but I feel so 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 grateful for going through that and I feel like that is what has propelled me to where I am today so it's and been you a still good suffer thing, really. with anxiety now don't you yeah yeah I don't like to say suffer suffer's the wrong word I guess it's me being a doctor you still yeah. have anxiety yeah 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 I still have anxiety I, I mean yeah I was telling my husband yesterday actually I was having a really anxious day yesterday and still sort of the hangover of it this morning but I don't know I'd love to actually do a consultation with you Liz and see if my <laughs> my perception of anxiety is actually real or um I don't know I've been trying to reframe anxiety a lot in the last year and I really believe it makes such a difference so I feel like I have suffered anxiety a lot and and suffered it is the word but I don't feel like I do now I feel like I go through it and I yeah. feel like because I've started to really pick apart what anxiety brings to me in a positive way I have managed to reframe it and I don't know if that is just a bit too bonkers and whether someone like you a medical professional will go yeah you're just delusional and that's fine do whatever works for you but you're talking about this (laughs) (laughs) am I though am I no you're not and it's like so I know I, I read your most recent article in Real Air magazine that just terrified the life out of me because you start oh. by describing breath holding for two minutes and that just yeah. made me panic. Oh. But you use, you use breathing exercises to help control. And I think, can you just explain to the listeners how they work and how they help you deal with a stressful situation? Yeah. So this is something I've only discovered this year, actually. But breath work, I find one of the most powerful, powerful things that I do. I've got too much going on, so I haven't had time to delve into the science properly. I let other people do that. I know the science is there if I want to tap into it, but it's just about how it makes me feel. So there are different versions of it. I love to do like a deep dive breath work, which is what I call it. And that was my first experience of breath work. It was through a friend of a friend and she does this visualization as well as breath work. And so what you do is, if anybody's come across Vim Hof, he's a massive deal these days. Um, he he does all of this. But you kind of essentially, I like to do an upregulated breath, which is doing really short, sharp breathing. Now, if you've ever suffered panic attacks, which I have a lot, it's terrifying yeah. to begin with because it feels exactly like a panic attack. But to then get control of that is so empowering. It's unreal. So what I do is, in a deep dive breath work, you'll do a lot of like, Breathing in and out really quickly, like deep breaths, but but very quickly. So a bit like yeah. that for however long your, your teacher is doing it for you with. So you're sort of depriving your brain of oxygen, really. Yeah. And then you take a, a huge deep breath in and you flood your brain with oxygen. Yeah. Hold that breath for as long as possible. And it feels like that air, the oxygen is swirling all around your body physically. You can see it. You can visualize it. I mm-hmm. see colors. Wow. And, and you hold it for as long as you can. Now, what I also love to do, and this intensifies it, if you pull up your pelvic floor and... Okay tighten like tighten all the muscles in your body as you're doing it you breathe up into I guess it's your third eye really I don't delve into that kind of spirituality although I think I probably would quite like it but you breathe up to this point in your forehead between your eyebrows so just behind your eyebrows if you like so you're, yeah. you're, you're pulling up your pelvic floor, you're tensing all your muscles, you're breathing up into your head and oh my life, the experience is unreal. It's unreal. 
So the thing is, it, it takes me maybe about round four or something, or round five to get really, really into it because also you're dealing with all your thoughts as you're doing it and you're yeah. distracted and you're thinking, I can't hold my breath, I'm panicking. It's about hard not being to be able to mindful, isn't it? Just exactly. Yes, yeah, so you've got to do it for, you just, you know, you've got to try to relax into it and then you let all your breath out again and you hold it on the out breath as well. And so what I have found with doing that, the first time I did it, I was in pieces. I was crying. It was during homeschooling and I was going through a hard time with my daughter in homeschooling and beating myself up about it. And mm -hmm. I came out of that breathwork practice so deeply grateful for the existence of my daughter and for this time yeah. together and for everything Aww. she brought into my life that it was overwhelming. It was amazing. So that was my first experience of breathwork. But I also do box breathing, which I know you do as well. Um, yeah. And this really helps me to focus. I mean, really sharply focus before I go live on TV. And it's just mm -hmm. breathing in for, I do it for four seconds, breathe in for a count of four, hold it for a count of four, out for a count of four and hold it for a count of four. And I do that for five minutes. And again, on the, in the in-breath, I breathe into that third eye place in your forehead. Yeah. As I'm doing it, it makes me so deeply aware of my potential as a person, as a creature, as a being, um, it makes me feel really powerful um, and it's a bit weird, but I absolutely love it. I love it. I should say I stopped drinking alcohol whenever I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. So this is how I get my kicks these days. Yeah. <laughs> so breathing. I'm getting high in a different way, but it's all entirely natural and it's amazing. I, I love that idea of something so simple you can do before stressful things. I've I've done power posing where you kind of, oh. you make the stance of a super, um, like a superhero. What? Hang on, I haven't heard this one before. Tell me. It's Amy Cuddy, power posing. You stand like you're Superman or Wonder Woman. So for me, it's shoulders back, chest out, hands on hip, head high, big oh. breath in, feeling superhuman. And it's really hard to let anyone criticize you when you're feeling all of that and you can do it in the wow. toilet. It's, it's a really quick thing to do in the toilet before an interview just to think, yeah. I've got this. The toilets are where it all happens. Yes. Aren't they? This oh, is where I go to do my breath work as well. <laughs> you know, I used to go to cry. Yeah, there's that as well. But I want to get back to anxiety because I think a lot of people don't realize that they are struggling. What did anxiety look like or feel like to you? To me, it's physical, but then you, you attach or I attach emotional, mental issues to it. So for me, anxiety is, and even talking about it makes me feel Sorry. it right now. But no, 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 it's fine because I've been, I've, I mean, I deal with it all the time anyway. Yeah. Um, it is a tightening of the gut. So it's mm -hmm. that really sick feeling in your stomach. It's a tightening of the chest. So I feel like this pressure in my in my chest and my lungs. And it's just a really uncomfortable feeling, not all over my skin. It's really just, I guess, from my neck to my navel. That's where I feel it really in my in my core. And so I've woken up with that feeling for as long as I can remember. Even as a child? I think as a child, yeah, because I was a really, really anxious child. And again, you wouldn't know it because, because I'm loud and I've got a loud laugh. And so people assume that's all there is to you. But I've always been really anxious. I mean, one of my first memories is sitting in my living room at home in Ireland and looking out the back window and seeing my mum hanging the washing on the line. And, mm -hmm. and it was like a, a sucker punch to the stomach when I realised that she was going to die one day. And I must have oh. been like five or something, like really young. But I've always had these worrying thoughts anyway. Yeah. And, and an awareness of mortality, which, which isn't that cheery. But the feeling that I have every morning and, and less so now that I've realised what it is, but yeah, I wake up with this 
it, it's like a sense of dread you know if you don't if you don't have anxiety it's just that feeling that you have when you're dreading something or you're nervous yeah. about something and so because I get that physical feeling I've always then attached worry to it so I've always thought okay well I'm clearly worried about something because this feels like worry so what yeah. am I worried about so I try to find the answer to what I'm worried about and then I try to fix it but the problem yeah. is anxiety feels like worry but it's not worry so you can't fix no. it you can't attach one worry to it resolve it and then move on it's always there so you think you're always worried about something and this is why exhausting. it is absolutely exhausting that's the word it's exhausting so when i realized that i was suffering anxiety and it is suffering at that stage it was the greatest liberation maybe of my life because I realized I didn't have to attach worried. I didn't have to attach anything. No. It was it's just like, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's just there. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd feel that feeling and I'd be like, oh, that's just anxiety. Oh, well, yeah. move on then. Did it affect your sleeping or your eating pattern? Because I know when I've had depression and anxiety in the past, I know I'm not well because I either sleep too much or can't sleep or I go off my food. Or was yours just that physical gut thing? No, it's the same as well. Um, going off my food is a big thing. Sometimes I would not overeat. I'm not an overeater, but I would maybe binge on things that I know aren't good for me, like chocolate, chocolate biscuits, things like that, because I need to feel mm -hmm. something and I need to gosh even just saying it out now out loud now makes me realize this for the first time um i think probably when i overindulge in chocolate biscuits it's because i want to feel something that's not what i'm yeah. feeling you know and it's you're not the I... only one who does it yeah 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 I, but used, I... I used to open a pack of biscuits and i'd have one and i think well if i eat them all they'll be gone and my husband wouldn't know i've had them yeah oh my god exactly the same exactly the same <laughs> or if they're gone i don't need to worry about them anymore no, they're not taunting they me don't. anymore uh -huh. So I will, I will overeat in that respect, but I don't tend, to, that's not like a regular thing. You know, it'll be, no. and I've got so much nervous energy, I burn it off anyway, but I will go off my food and I'll forget to eat and sleep is a massive thing. I don't sleep enough yeah. anyway, but I do have two kids. So that's another, th the reason that I do breath work and meditation just to try to find, yeah. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of the word balance. I don't feel like my life is in balance and I'm quite happy with that, I think, but I guess balance yeah. means different things in different ways but yeah I guess it brings the yin or the yang to the craziness to be able to Definitely. sleep properly but I feel like I want to just say quickly what I think the positives are of, of anxiety are because because I think that we're all so aware of the negatives and I think if someone is suffering from anxiety it might help sometimes to to reframe it slightly and I feel like for me in the last year working out what it actually brings me because I am actually glass half full you know when I realized I had anxiety I thought okay well there must be advantages to this because it can't just be yeah. shit um and I really think that it's actually just in the way that we're wired you know and and, and anxiety yeah. to me is just an excess of nervous energy and because I associate because we associate the physical feelings of that with negative and we attach negative connotations to it then that's why we suffer from it but actually the nervous energy that I have is also what makes me so productive and makes me work so hard and makes me try to overachieve in things and, and constantly learn things and constantly active and on the go. And, and it makes me exercise physically because I need something to distract from 
or just burn, I guess, a nervous energy. And yeah. that makes me fitter than I would be if I didn't have anxiety. I feel like I've that learned more sense. skills because I have anxiety because I've got to distract my brain. I've come to meditation and breath work because of anxiety and they bring me so many advantages in life. So I really feel like I, I'm so, okay, and I'm so grateful that I have anxiety because because it's part of a whole hardwiring of my system that actually I think is, again, to go back to that phrase, it's probably overused these days, but I don't really care. I feel it makes me quite badass, actually, than, and, yeah. and more badass than if I didn't have it. So again, I'm I'm quite grateful for it. And when I'm, when I'm going through it, like even yesterday when I was intensely anxious, but I was intensely anxious and I knew that and I was in the shower and I was listening to a song and the song made me cry, but through Aww. happiness. And I thought, wow, this is also anxiety. I'm crying yeah. out of happiness because I find this song so beautiful and I'd hate to lose You have that. to tell us, to... what was what was the song? <laughs> it's so, oh, I listen to the, I, I've got this one playlist that I listen to all the time. It's terrible. It was um, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, Shallow, you know, from the movie A Star Is Born. I just find that song so beautiful and the way they harmonise together, so beautiful. So that's the song that brought me to tears yesterday, but it could be any song really. Oh. Yeah. But I, I like, I like that I'm someone who cries at beautiful music because I think that's it's a beautiful lovely. thing. Music, it can really move you, can't you? Yeah. Now, one of our listeners asked, what advice would you give a younger version of yourself who's just starting out? I would probably, even though I'm saying how wonderful it is to be so intense and, and wired this way, I'd probably say chill the hell out. Just yeah. chill out. It's all fine. You will be fine and you're good enough. And I think that's probably what we can all tell each other and ourselves all the time. You're good enough. You know, it's all that. good enough. Yeah, that would be my advice. You can stop climbing the ladder yeah, or, when you want. Or just enjoy the ladder. It's fine. I, I would never want to stop climbing the ladder, but enjoy the view as you're going up. The top's not going to be better than here, you know? Yeah. Enjoy each rung of it as you go, really. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> now, before we, before we go, I want to talk about joy. Yeah, because I oh, started something called a jar of joy um, when I found out my cancer had grown during chemo mm. and I was at the lowest moment of my life so far and I oh, needed nice. a reason to smile. So every time something good happened, um, I'd write it on a card and put it in a jar. I love and that. And seeing that jar full of just seeing that jar full of happy memories would always lift me when I was in a dark place. So I've started a jar of joy for the podcast. Mm. Can you share with us one thing that's made you smile in the last couple of days? Hmm. <laughs> really cliched but my kids my children and I like to remind myself of the joy they bring me because they're also a pain in the ass as all children are <laughs> they're such hard work they give me such such intense joy I mean this probably is quite classic of our relationship but we're trying to get them to sleep in their own beds at the minute and they just don't. They want to come into us every night. My daughter has just turned seven. My son is about to turn three. They're probably, <laughs> you know, they really should be sleeping in their own beds. But anyway, and my daughter came in again at 3 a.m. this morning and wants to chat. So I allow oh. her to stay in bed only if she'll stop talking and just lie there. Then my son comes trotting in. I hear his little footsteps at 6 a.m. and he jumps in beside us and he jumps in saying, oh, the bed's really full. I'm like, yeah, honey, so go back to your own. <laughs> anyway, so there's four of us in a bed this morning. Yeah. And I'm really just thinking, oh man, I didn't sleep until midnight. I've not even had six hours sleep. I've got so much to do today. 
And then I turned over and I put my arm around both of them and my daughter was right beside me. My son was on the other side and I was able to reach over my daughter and put my hand on my son's belly. And his mm-hmm. belly just felt so soft and beautiful. And Aww. with my daughter underneath me, then she turned around to give me a kiss. And I thought, this, this is everything. This is absolutely everything. And I don't care how much sleep I've had. And I don't care how difficult the morning is going to be getting them out the door to school and to nursery. Just having this moment of them breathing beside me and the warmth of their bodies and, and their love and my love for them. So that that's probably been the most... I mean, I've had a lot of joyful moments the last couple of days. I think I'm lucky my life is full of joy, really. But mm-hmm. that that was a very special moment, really. Oh, all about the kids. Forget the husband. Yeah. It's all about the kids. <laughs> well, he was snoring on the other side. He never gets woken up by the kids, ever. <laughs> so he'll snore happily through it all. Um, my husband as well. Yeah, my husband as well. He was checking in on me this morning with my anxiety and checking that I was okay and giving me a little kiss before doing the podcast. So um, he always makes yeah. me happy too. Oh, that's lovely. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Ola. It's just been lovely to listen to you and hear you talk. Thank you for having me, Liz. It's been a joy and it's lovely to catch up with you again. I loved our apple pie and coffee in Amsterdam. We'll have to do that again sometime and we'll have to get a picture together next time because we forgot we were too busy chatting. We we did. We forgot to take a (laughs) selfie. There will be a next time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dola. I have a great day. Thank you. You too. Take care. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Don't Ignore the Elephant. I've learned so much after speaking to Orla. I never really suffered with anxiety before I had cancer, but the fear of waiting for results and scans and the worry about whether my cancer will come back can be crippling at times. I'm definitely going to use Orla's box breathing in the future. Let me know if it helps you. She has such an important message for anyone listening who finds themselves struggling to cope. When you feel like you don't fit in, Orla has shown that it can be done and she's an inspiration to many women who want to wear what they want and still be taken seriously. I'd love to know if Orla has empowered you to dress differently at work. The response to Dr. Catherine Mannix's episode last week has been amazing. Please keep sending me your comments because I love hearing them. These are just a few that I've had in the last couple of days. Karen said that it was the best way she has heard to explain the process of dying to a family. Cheryl said that it's helped her deal with some unresolved issues from her cancer diagnosis several years ago. Angus said that he was much more comfortable having conversations about dying now. And a listener in Greece said that she has found such comfort from the episode after the sudden death of her father, and that it's kept her company in the stillness of early grief, like a friend she never knew she had. I can't tell you how much your comments mean. It only brings home how much work we need to do to keep talking about the elephants in the room. The podcast jar of joy is over halfway full now, so please keep sending in your entries for the week. In the next episode, I'm going to be speaking about body image, bodybuilding and bulimia with Clara Swetland, a personal trainer and sports psychologist. She's also the woman responsible for turning my menopausal body into a strong, lean machine, and I can't wait for you to hear her story. So if you've enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe so the next episode is ready when you are. And if you do have a few seconds to spare in your day, it would be wonderful if you could leave a review and let me know what you thought. It really means a lot. Thank you for listening.
Don't Ignore the Elephant is produced by Birdline Media in association with Elizabeth Richards.